0: My guest today lives in Winnipeg, but grew up during apartheid in South Africa. Lindy Guma is going to share her story and some of the tragedy that her family personally have gone through with living in South Africa, apartheid, finding a way out as a refugee to. Calgary, and eventually Winnipeg. Lindy Guma, welcome to Humans on Rights.
1: Thank you, Stuart. I'm pleased to be here, and and I appreciate that you have asked me to share with you.
0: So, Lindy, let's go back to you as a young person. You're born in South Africa. Where exactly were you born in South Africa? What town?
1: I was born in a town called Queenstown. And at the time, it was in the Cape province. But with the new South Africa, it is now in the Eastern Cape. And it was a small town where my father was a high school principal. And that's the town that I was born in. And I lived there until the age of about 10.
0: And did you have brothers and sisters at that time, Lindy?
1: Yes, I am one of six children. There were four older ones, and then I had a younger brother.
0: Tell me at that time, I mean, as all young children around the world, they grow up, they play games, they do different things. What sort of activities would have, and you, when you rethink back on your time for those first 10 years, what sort of activities stood out to you and made an impression on you as a young girl growing up in that area?
1: We lived in an area that, it was a street that had mixed race people. So there were people of European origin, and then there were people of East Indian origin. And then there was, uh, in South Africa, they were classified as colored. So it was a mix of European and the black. And so that's the area that I grew up in. And those are the kids that we used to play with. We didn't all go to the same school because the schools were segregated. You could only go to the school of your racial background. And we had informal gatherings with these kids on the street because we were all close to the same age. The one thing I remember is that my mother always took me to Girl Guides. But we didn't have any formal sport. But we did play. Uh, we watched you know, older people playing things like cricket and soccer and rugby. And so those are the things that we played. But we didn't have the sophisticated things to use or a field to use.
0: So, Lindy, let's just Put it into perspective for a second. Around what year are we talking about now?
1: I was born in 1949, so I went to school, I guess, around 1955, 56, I think. So in the mid 50s to just about the end of the 50s.
0: Right. If my research is accurate, at that time I think Hendrik. Verward was the president and has been kind of known to be the architect of apartheid. You you might not have seen any or been aware of any of that as a young person, Lindy?
1: No, I didn't. I was not aware of what was going on. You know, I I said at the beginning that uh, we had mixed race, you know, people living together on that street. And It was before the Group Areas Act. And the Group Areas Act was introduced by H.F. Pervert. And that's who was the, I'm not sure if it was the prime minister or president, but he was the leader of the Nationalist Party. And so after he took office, he designed an education for the different racial groups. As you would probably know, In South Africa, we had four different racial groups and the hierarchy was the European descendants were at the top, followed by the colored people and then the people of East Indian origin. And then the blacks were right at the bottom. And so even though we played with these kids, but they always would on occasion make us aware that we were inferior to them.
0: So you didn't, you obviously went, as you said, to separate schools, but you, because you all occupied the same neighborhood after school and maybe on weekends, you had a chance to play together and interact, but you still at that time felt that you were treated as a second class citizen.
1: Well, I mean, at the time, I wasn't really aware because my parents or my older siblings never talked about it. Or if they did, they would not say it to us younger ones. We were made to be aware that we were different. And we sort of accepted it as normal because nobody was saying anything about it at the time. And probably it was also my understanding. That's just the way things were.
0: For sure. And you never felt at that point again, you know, this is really going back into the memory bank, Lindy, but you never felt any tension. I mean, usually as young kids, you know, you're more interested in, I mean, so many other things. I, I don't want to speculate, but I mean, you're not really aware of some of the worldly or even local tensions when you're younger. You, I mean, I'm not saying you're naive to it. But there's so many other things as you're growing up. Your eyes are starting to become wider and wider open as you learn. But did you get any sense at all that there might be any tension in the neighborhood at all?
1: No, not at all. It it was not a big neighborhood. There were probably about 10 houses. But there were certain houses where as black kids we couldn't go because the parents were not accepting. And if they did allow us, we would always go through the back door, you know, so you couldn't go and knock on the front door. Even though that was happening that way, as a child, you think, oh, well, that's just how it is.
0: So, Lindy, let me ask you this question. If somebody came to visit your parents or came to your house and they were either, you know, white or uh, colored, as you say, would they be allowed in the front door?
1: Yes, definitely. They would be allowed. But then again, I must clarify that with the people who live on our street and we still interacted, they, you know, like the discussions were over the fence type of thing. It was people were not actually coming into the house. However, My father was a teacher, so he was respected, you know, because the high school he was in was the only high school. And therefore, he commanded respect. So he would be invited into the homes. But us as children, we could only go through the back door if we did.
0: I see. Okay. So, Lindy, let's move past that. You're now for 10 years. You've lived in this small community. What's next in terms of where you move and what's happening to you and your personal journey?
1: My family, or my dad's family, is originally from the. It was called a, a Bantustan or homeland called the Transkei, but it is now part of the Eastern Cape. So that's where our, you know, ancestral home is. So my dad had property there and because he retired from his job then we moved back to Mtata. You know it's the town called Mtata.
0: And what were you doing at that time? I mean were you you were going to school? It was it a different kind of environment where the uh, the neighborhood was there's anything different than what you'd experienced in the first 10 years of your life?
1: Oh absolutely. The majority of People in the Transkai were the coarser people, you know, so those are, you know, of, of an African background. So our neighbors, they all looked like us. And so the school I went to, I was sent to a boarding school and it was just, you know, just for black, black students only. Even though the teachers and the principal were of a different color.
0: So was that, again, sort of a tradition, Lindy, in that area? So that if you were, say, white, did you go to a separate school? Was there segregation on all levels at, uh, at that level for education?
1: Oh, absolutely. But not only for education, but any amenity that you can think of, like the hospitals, they were segregated, swimming pools, restaurants, you know, anything that you can think of. You know, there they would even be signs saying for whites only there were buses, you know, in transportation It was the same thing. Everything was segregated. And I think the name apartheid, which means separate, it's a originally a Dutch word. It means separate. So that's what uh, Dr. Hendrik der Wut, the, you know, the prime minister at the time had designed.
0: So tell me a little bit about that experience, Lindy, from through your eyes. If you wanted to go swimming, if there was a public swimming pool, is, were there times that you could go to swim in there, or were you not allowed to swim in there? What was that experience like?
1: What was happening was there was a swimming pool for white people, for colours, for Indians, and they were all separate. So there was a swimming pool, but for Blacks, but as you can imagine, since we were regarded as the fourth class citizens, it was not as posh or as as having all the stuff that you would want to see in a swimming pool.
0: And again, it just was absolutely uh, not allowed to interchange in terms of attending or going to another swimming pool from another from another color of skin.
1: Oh, not at all. They were all separate just like the schools, just like the hospital.
0: And Lindy, again, at some point as you start to become from, you know, a child to a very young woman, did you start to realize that because you see all these differences in these four classes of people, as you mentioned, did it ever start to occur to you that something was not right or something wasn't fair about that kind of a situation?
1: Yes, absolutely. Because when I was in high school, my last two years of high school, we were not provided with the best education. The most emphasis was on studying religion and the rest of the subject, which of course are designed differently than what you see in Canada. They were just enough to allow us to read and write, so to speak. And so then I started saying something to my parents about it, but they were of the impression that I was not pulling my weight in studying. (laughs) So (laughs) they were not quite supportive in that sense.
0: What might you have said? Recall what you might have said to your parents that they felt... That you that you wanted to bring up, and their response was that you're not pulling your weight. What what did you share with them, or what were your observations?
1: Uh, I remember just talking to my mother. You know, because she was the one person. My father was very quiet. You know, very smart man, but at the same time very quiet. So I always felt more comfortable talking to my mom, who was also a teacher, but she was not uh, teaching outside the home. So I said. You know, at school, we are not really taught some some periods, you know, during the day we would sit just by ourselves because the teachers were praying somewhere because (laughs) it was around the time communism was erupting. And also in South Africa, I think there were some rumbles because the ANC was formed and many other education many other organizations that were speaking against the system.
0: So there would be times when you literally would be sitting in your classroom without any teacher because they were off, as far as you could tell, praying or doing something other than teaching you.
1: That's correct, yes. Because I went to, you know, the boarding school was a church-run boarding school, by the Dutch Reformed Church. And that was, I'm not quite sure where it originated, but it's related to the Afrikaners who now live in South Africa.
0: So you boarded there, but did you get a chance to go and visit your parents when? when...
1: Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I cut you off. Yes, I I did. We had uh, four quarters, you know, in the year. So our school year starts in January, and then in March we would get a 10-day break, you know, because it's usually around Easter time. And then there'll be another quarter, which ended in June, and then we would go back to school at the end of July. So I think it was about four weeks. And then again in September, and then at the end of the year, which is December, then we would have a longer holiday, which was six weeks. Then at that point, then we were, you know, we took transportation to go back to our
0: homes. Okay. So, so Lindy, you mentioned roughly somewhere between four to six weeks of, uh, of, you know, holidays, the term you used. What would you do during those four to six weeks as a, as a young adult?
1: As a young adult, I would either help my mother in her garden because she loved gardening, or sometimes we would visit relatives.
0: And would that mean, would you be traveling to do that, or would they be fairly close by?
1: Sometimes they would be close by, you know, and the furthest was probably an hour or two away. So it was not a long distance.
0: Right. And would would you take a car to go and visit them?
1: Yeah, at the time, my father, or if he didn't have a car at the time, one of my brothers was already working, and so they were able to, you know, to take us to where we needed to go, especially my mom's home, which is in Katkat.
0: Right, right. So, Lindy, you're now at this point, you're you're starting to get towards graduating from, uh, I'll call it high school. Is that what you is that what you re- refer to as high school? So you're you're getting ready to graduate. What's on your mind? What do you what do you want to do? What's what do you think is is the next steps ahead? I mean both academically and for you personally. What do you see for your life as you get ready to graduate?
1: Well, my dream was to be able to go to university, you know, and I wanted to take education. That was my dream, but I think I was watching my parents, you know, as They probably influenced me. And I think uh, the other factor was that we were not being taught properly in school. And I thought I could be the change if I became a teacher. But unfortunately, that was quashed by my mother. And she said, no, you cannot go to teaching. Go do something else.
0: (laughs) The old supportive mother.
1: (laughs) Yes. And so I ended up, uh, you know, opting to go into nursing.
0: And now let's just continue that conversation for a second. You're going into nursing. Are you in, be, Are you able to be at a mixed? I don't know if it's university that they taught nursing, but at that school, as you were taking nursing, were those mixed classes?
1: In a way, they were. You know, for East Indian or colored but there were no white students and it was a nursing college. So I had to go to another city, even though there was a a school of nursing in Mtata in the town that we live. But I think my brother preferred, you know, all the decisions were made for me, preferred that I go to a train at a hospital called McCord's Hospital in Durban because that's where he had worked himself.
0: Okay, and when you say, just to touch on for a quick second, you say that all your decisions were made for you. Was that your mother and your father doing that?
1: By this time, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that in my, my father passed away suddenly in 1968. So this is just shortly after I graduated from high school.
0: So your mother is the one that is really giving you... Parental advice
1: exactly, as well as my brother, because then once my father passed away, my oldest brother became like uh, you know the guardian that's it that's just the you know the African culture the male always has to be you know the one who makes the decision
0: and so Lindy just put this in perspective real quick so your your father passes away you have Uh, Your brother, your older brother, just give us a sense of what your family was. What was the makeup of your family? How many brothers and sisters and where did you fit in the kind of the pecking order, if I could use that term, with, uh, with your siblings?
1: I had three older brothers. The one who was the decision maker was the oldest and then followed by a sister and then another brother and then another one and then myself. And then I had a younger brother. Unfortunately, all the boys are gone and it's just me and my sister and she's 11 years older than me.
0: Now, when you say they're all gone, are you saying that as we're recording this today that they are no longer alive?
1: That's correct, yes.
0: And so did a lot of them pass away in South Africa or did some of them, we're going to get to your story about how you became a refugee and came to Canada. But as we're still talking were in South Africa. Did your family members pass in South Africa?
1: Yes, they all remained in South Africa. And so they all died there.
0: That's pretty tragic. I mean, that's a a good sized family to have that many people as you and I are having a conversation today, knowing that those siblings are no longer with you.
1: Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that, Lindy. Lindy, you now become a nurse? You graduate and you become a nurse. Is, as you're ready to graduate, is it very clear to you that you will be working in a specific hospital that is racially based?
1: Indeed. The hospital I trained in, um, it's a hospital where people had to pay privately and so most people who could afford to get to that hospital were the East Indian people or colored people. And then most Blacks or Africans who went to that hospital is because they were workers in an industry and they were injured at work. And therefore the company was paying for their expenses.
0: And how long did you, did you practice your profession as a nurse?
1: In South Africa, it was about five or six years.
0: And during that five or six years, I think you, you met somebody. You met your husband.
1: Absolutely, yes. I met my husband, Eric Duduzi Guma, and he was a law student at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. So it was not in Durban, but... Uh, outside of Durban, and we fell in love, got married, and had two lovely children.
0: Where were you living at at this time, Lindy, with your family?
1: We were living in a township called Kwamashu, so a township where the areas where the Black people live. They were just designed for that. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and then your husband, Eric, was He's studying law. And so, one of the things that, that he used, I believe, his well, I, it wasn't necessarily his study of law. I think he just, again, looked at what was happening in South Africa the, with apartheid and, and the unfairness of it. Tell us a bit about how he started to get more active politically.
1: Okay. So, when he was at the university, there was a student body which was conscious of what was happening in South Africa. That often happens when people go to university, right? And so he would talk about how the system was unfair to Black people and others as well, but mostly the Black people because we were in the majority and we were affected the most by the apartheid system. And so he did join an organization called the Black Consciousness Movement, and then the ball started rolling because then there were a lot of arrests because people were protesting, you know, one way or the other, and they were always trying to find a way to change things in South Africa.
0: So... Let's talk a little bit about, you know, I, again, Nelson Mandela is iconic. And I mentioned, I think, at the top of this show that uh, July 18th is, is Nelson Mandela International Day, and as it should be. I mean, uh, he was an amazing, amazing human being. There were lots of people, and I think Nelson Mandela would be the first person to say it wasn't just him. There were many, many, many others who were posed to apartheid and were working against it. One of those people that I believe your husband got to know, that Eric got to know, was Steve Biko. Tell me about Steve Biko.
1: Oh, Steve Biko was one of the founders of the Black Consciousness Movement, and I think he was influenced probably in a way by the Black Panther, where he he had to sort of educate us to understand that the color of our skin has nothing to do with who we are. You know, we are just as good as anyone else. And before his time, we were trying so much to fit into the the bigger mold And, you know, straightening our hair, bleaching our skin, you know, and just trying to change who we were because we thought that we would be accepted. But the black consciousness, I think that's what Steve was all about, that you are good the way you are. You've been created that way and that you should understand.
0: And so did your husband, Lindy, your husband, Eric, did he know Steve?
1: Yes, he had met Steve because Steve was at the University of Natal, which was the medical school for the Black students. And at the same time, he was organizing university students and other people and also the grassroots movement to make them aware. So he was creating that movement. And so they had met at some point, personally, I never met him, but I knew about him.
0: Right. And and he tragically was, he being Steve Biko, was tragically assassinated at the age of 30.
1: Correct. Yes. I think there was a roadblock. I mean, there was a lot happening in South Africa at the time because, you know, the the black consciousness people were traveling from place to place, having conferences. And then the police or the security police would have roadblocks and uh, they found Steve with someone else traveling. And he was arrested. And in Port Elizabeth, he was taken to a prison in Port Elizabeth. And then I think 48 hours later, I'm not quite sure of the details. He was found in a prison in Pretoria. And that's many, many miles away. I venture to say about 900 kilometers away. And he had been bludgeoned and he had passed away.
0: So your husband, Eric, obviously is uh, very active in the Black Consciousness movement. What impact does this have on your husband?
1: Oh, it affected him and his friends profoundly they took up the, we say you pick up the spear or take off from where Steve had left. And they were determined that they were going to carry on the work that he had started.
0: And tell me a bit about what your husband, Eric, he had to, at some point, leave South Africa.
1: That's correct. Because in the process, After Steve Biko died, he decided to formally join the African National Congress. And that was the organization that Nelson Mandela had started. Well, he he hadn't started it, but he was part of that organization. So because of that, then the authorities found out because the African National Congress was illegal in South Africa. If you were a member, you were either arrested or you had to flee the country. So a lot of people were escaping the country. And also, I would like to mention that with regards to Steve Biko, because of the way he was organizing, he was going to the high school students. So I don't know if you've heard of the Soweto uprisings or the Soweto Yes, the Soweto uprisings in 1976.
0: Yeah, I'm aware, but please tell us about them, please.
1: So, I, we talked a little bit about the disparity in education. So, our education was called the Bantu education, Bantu meaning people, but they were referring to the Black people. So, if you saw any sign where it says no Bantu is allowed, it was referring to us black people. And so Ferrout, Mr. Ferrout, he designed the Bantu education. It was an inferior kind of education for Black people, you know, and as I said, you know, we were just taught to be able to just to read and write, to get orders from somebody, but not to to go into any higher education. And so they also introduced the Africans' language. So at home, we spoke our native language, which is Xhosa for me. And then we were also learning English. But on top of that, they had introduced the Africans' language. And of course, because the architects of apartheid were the Afrikaners, then we said Africans is an oppressor's language. And we did not want to learn that. I was forced to learn it in high school. But of course, the uprisings came after I had already left high school. So the students in Soweto organized and said, down with the oppressor's language, down with the Bantu education. And so that's when how the uprising started. And of course, we know that some of the students were killed and some disappeared, and then some had to leave the country because the security police were after them.
0: And what, just again, the impact that that had on you and on your husband, Eric?
1: Well, it did have an impact indirectly, even though we were out of school, but the architects of apartheid were strengthening the the reins on us. So there were more laws put into place and there were some security acts that were introduced, you know, so that you could be detained for for so many days without even seeing a lawyer, without any trial. And so we were getting disillusioned, wondering if there would ever be any change. And so decisions had to be made whether you stay in that system and fight or you try something else.
0: What did Eric do?
1: I don't think he wanted to leave, but because after he had completed his you know, law degree, then he started working for a company that was defending political prisoners. So he got quite involved in that you know and he was able to to get some of them released as well from prison because there was no trial they were just sitting there in jail so i think the security people they didn't like what he was doing and so he got arrested once and at the time i was in the hospital after i'd been in a car accident and he didn't show up one evening when he used to come and visit me on a regular basis. And then my sister-in-law told me that he'd been arrested, but he managed to, I would say, wiggle out of that, you know, because they let him go. And then about a month later, they were looking for him again. And then at that point, he knew that if they took him again, then he would either be imprisoned or, and I mean, they. Chances being killed were very high because a lot of prisoners were dying in prison for, they would say, oh, he fell in the shower and hit his head, you know, type
0: of thing. Did he leave South Africa?
1: Yes, he had to flee South Africa in 1978 and he went to Swaziland.
0: Okay, so to Swaziland. and. And then you, the, you now, your husband is in Swaziland. You and your two children are still in South Africa. Correct. How did you manage that relationship? Were you able to visit him or how did, that, uh, how did that work out?
1: It was very difficult because at the time we didn't have cell phones to start with. And then secondly, it's not all the homes that had telephones. So there was no way of him calling me but there would always be a career, you know, because I also needed financial support. So somebody, you know, would pop by our house and and give me some information about him.
0: And he got to be quite active, obviously, at this point. I mean, even probably more so than when he was in South Africa.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. Because the ANC was very active, In the countries that were surrounding South Africa, there were some operations that were being done.
0: So, Lindy, you're a mother, you're a nurse, uh, and you have two children, and your husband is a known activist working for the ANC. Did you ever feel pressure that you were being watched or that they were trying to make your life difficult knowing who your husband was?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, after he had escaped, somebody came to the door. And now, you know, you have to remember in South Africa, there are security issues. So we had a high fence around our home, but they managed to cut the fence and get inside. And then there were knocks on the windows, on the doors. And at the time, My one of my older brothers had come to live with me just for safety. And so they wanted to know where he was. And then a few weeks following that, they came, the security police came to pick me up to take me to their center where I was interrogated. I was threatened. And I I mean, I fell apart, you know, crying.
0: Understandable. What was the next thing that took place in terms of your life with Eric?
1: So a year later, I was able to visit through some assistance from some friends because I didn't even have a passport. We, we didn't have passports because we were not able to travel anywhere. But he was an ambassador for the Trans Sky. And so he made arrangements for me to get a passport in order to travel but this passport you know it only allowed you to go to the to the bordering countries you know i couldn't come to canada with a passport a passport like that so i was able to get to swaziland and then we met and then we discussed you know our future and then the decision was to bring the kids along and myself because I was finding it very difficult to be, you know, without him in South Africa.
0: Yeah. And so did you make the decision to move to Swaziland to be with Eric?
1: Yes, I did. And I left South Africa January 7th, 1980. It's a date that I can never forget.
0: I suspect not, Lindy. And and your two children at that time, how old would they be?
1: They were Five and
0: seven, and so now you're you're in Swaziland. Are you able to get work as a nurse?
1: Eventually, I did. Yes, I was able to work. I worked at a hospital, at one of the hospitals in in a town called Manzini.
0: And tell me a bit about what next happens to uh, your husband Eric.
1: So in, so we got to. Swaziland in 1980. And then he was doing his work and I was also doing mine. The kids are going to school. And then one weekend, there was a conference with the people of the ANC, which was held in Mozambique. So he left on a Saturday night and told me that they would be back on a Thursday. So they were at the conference. And Thursday never showed up. And then I waited on Friday wondering what was happening. And then on Saturday morning, I was told that they had been, well, somebody said, you know, I guess they wanted to put it mildly to me. There had been an accident in Madola. And Madola is a suburb in Maputo. You know, Maputo is the capital you know, city of uh, Mozambique. And so I was hoping for the best. So I crossed my fingers, still hoping that he was going to come through the door. But instead, some ANC officials came to let me know that he was one of the fallen people in in an attack that night.
0: There had been an attack in Matola, the community or the town of Matola. There had been an attack. Yes. And I think there were a number of, Fatalities: some number of people killed, and one of them was your husband.
1: Yes, correct.
0: And is that there's a a, a, a memorial there to to dedicate that, or t- tell us a little bit about that?
1: So this happened in 1981, and it took many years for the ANC, you know, to collaborate with the Mozambican government, you know, to build this memorial, and only because. The neighboring countries like Lesotho, Botswana, Swaziland, Zambia, and, and many other countries, and including Mozambique, of course, they had been so supportive to the organizations that were fighting apartheid. So they felt that with all that had happened, the Madola 11, they were not the only people that had been killed. There were some people who had been killed in Lesotho and other countries. But then the the Mozambican government decided that they had to honor all these people. But the Matola 11 of January 1981, I don't know if it was more outstanding. I don't know what they based their decision on. But they decided that there would be a museum as well as this monument.
0: So take us back to that, that night, Lindy. You know, you know that Eric is very active. You know, he's had to flee South Africa to get to Swaziland. You've joined him. You yourself have been harassed by the authorities. How do you come to terms? And maybe even today it's difficult, but how do you come to terms with the fact that your husband was so passionate about doing what was right? and fighting apartheid, and alongside so many others, and that you find the news that he has been tragically murdered?
1: Well, my husband was influenced by the thoughts and ideas from people like Steve Biko, like Nelson Mandela, and many other leaders of these organizations. So they felt that freedom should be for all. And also for the people who didn't really understand that this was not right, you know, because at some point people become complacent and said, well, what can we do? But he was one of those people who was determined that until everyone is free, then him having a law degree and probably he could have had a good job in South Africa and a good life. But he didn't feel that that was the right thing to do because he would uh, say, you know, about Nelson Mandela that Nelson Mandela was also a lawyer. He could have had a good job, but he stood for what was right and he was prepared to stay in prison and he was prepared to die in prison for what he believed in. So he always told me that this was Very important, not just for him or for me, but also for our children and our grandchildren and the generations to come.
0: It's really quite amazing to see the passion when people know that they are being withheld or they're being treated, as you said, as fourth class citizens, knowing that that issue is there I think that that's one of those uh, very, very difficult things that you realize that you you're living with somebody who is so driven to do the right thing, not for himself, as you say, but for generations to come and to have now a memorial uh, recognizing the injustice that he served must be something that you reflect on a daily basis.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I also teach that I'm a grandmother, so I teach my grandchildren. They were born in Canada. They've never been to South Africa. But I always tell them of my background, where I came from. Sometimes they think that I'm just maybe complaining.
0: (laughs) I doubt that, Lindy. It's 1981. You have tragically lost your husband. What goes through your mind as a mother with two children, knowing the awful situation that, that apartheid has brought on? What do you decide to do next for your life's journey?
1: Well, I'm the kind of person who's always looking for the next solution. So I sat down and I thought, okay, what next? What do I do now? Do I stay here? I knew I couldn't go back to South Africa because if you had left as a refugee, it was not easy. It was not an easy process to go back. And at the time, things were really starting to heat up in Southern Africa. The South African Defense Force were intimidating. They would bomb some houses. There are some friends that we lost because or a car bomb was placed in their car. So a lot of people were losing their lives. And they were also still surveilling me and wanting to know what I was doing. So I didn't feel particularly safe, especially for my mental health. I felt that I was going to spiral down. So then I sought some advice. And then somebody suggested that, why don't you try and apply for refugee status in Canada? And so that's what I did. And so I got an interview with the representative from the Canadian, I think, high commissioner. I'm not sure if they, I don't think there's an embassy in South Africa, but somebody came from Pretoria to interview me at the United Nations. I was accepted as a refugee to come to Canada.
0: And so tell us what that's in 1981. Is that, did it take you, were you able to do that fairly quickly? Or what year did you finally leave Swaziland and come to Canada?
1: Stuart, I'm not quite sure how long the process took, but it was not an instant decision. I thought about it. And at first, I wanted to go to England because my sister was living in, in uh, Manchester in England at the time. And so I thought if I went there, then I would be close to someone that I knew closely. But unfortunately, they would not accept me with the children. So then the next step was to find What's the second option? And so, you know, Canada was the was the place.
0: So, just so I understand, Lindy, there was an option for you or an opportunity to go to England, but you could only go, but not with your children.
1: That's correct. Which meant that my children would have had to go to there was a place called Morogoro in Tanzania, and that's where women and children living and the ones who didn't have their parents, they were looked after by other people.
0: Well, well I, you know, one thing it's interesting that, that Canada, this country, had an opportunity to frankly do the right thing, which is to welcome not only you, but your children. And so you came to Canada. Did you first arrive in what city?
1: I landed in Calgary, but the people who actually sponsored me because I came in as a refugee were living in Picture Butte. And it was the Church of St. Catherine's, or they call it Parish of St. Catherine's. It was a Catholic group of people who had decided to sponsor refugees. And I happened to fit the bill for what they were looking for at the time.
0: And so you're now in Calgary. What brought you, Lindy, to Winnipeg?
1: Okay, so Picture Butte was a very small town. It had a small 20-bed hospital, and I was hoping that I would pursue my career. And the chances of ever getting a job in a 20-bed hospital were pretty slim because they don't have a lot of staff. And so there's a lady who was living in Winnipeg at the time, studying at the University of Manitoba, who I grew up with, and she was also a single parent. So when I found out that she was here, I contacted her and I came to visit. And then after that short visit, she said, why don't we join hands and work together in raising our kids? So that's when I moved to Winnipeg. But she's no, she no longer lives here now. She's in Ontario.
0: Right. So, Lindy, that's an incredible journey that you've just taken us on. When you think about the fact that the UN General Assembly has deemed July 18th to be Nelson Mandela International Day, do you ever reflect when you hear that name does that ever make you think back to your time in South Africa and the challenges? And I mean, you know, there were challenges, but clearly your family sounded like they were amazing, you know, close and you were big. Your family was quite large. But do you reflect back on all of the experiences that you have, have had? And they they're, they're it's incredible to, to listen to you tell me them but when you reflect back on them what stands out when people sort of mention the name nelson mandela
1: oh my goodness nelson mandela he stands as a giant amongst many leaders he is so well respected around the world he stood for his he stood up for his ideals he never changed he never faltered and he is somebody who fought for human right. He taught us forgiveness. He taught us kindness. He taught us servanthood. Because even after he came out of prison, he was never bitter. And I'll tell you something that when we were hoping that things would change in South Africa, I think what was in most people's hearts was Then we are going to kick those white people out of South Africa. They should go back to where they came from. You know, that was the talk. But this gentle giant, I think the 27 years behind bars, even though he was imprisoned, his mind was not imprisoned. He was a free man and he had the opportunity to think and then he was able to negotiate the method and the strategy to get rid of apartheid. So the day he was released from prison in 1990, I remember there was a union center. We were gathered at the union center. And I'm telling you, we danced our hearts out. We were so happy. And I mean, the mention of his name, when you say You come from South Africa. If anybody asks you where do you come from, I'd say South Africa. Oh Mandela, Mandela. So I mean, he's a stalwart. He was just such a he was such a courageous man. I mean, you couldn't help but just love him because he was so down to earth, he was so humble. And you know, spending 27 years in prison in order for his fellow human beings, not just the Black people, but freedom for all.
0: Lindy, and I would just say that when you mentioned freedom for all, you've said some very, very eloquent things about an iconic giant, Nelson Mandela. But your husband, Eric, Steve Biko, and many, many others, the Matola 11, it really is something that I think the world can learn so much from. And I think one of the, I would like to just personally say to you, Lindy, thank you for sharing this time with me to talk about your personal life journey. You're an extraordinary person. We're delighted and thrilled that you're living here in Winnipeg. And when you think about what you've been through, I, I, there, there's been many, many that probably have been through things similar to you. But there are many, many also, Lindy, that would not have the strength to do what you've done. And just think that it, it's really a testament to the human spirit that you are here in Winnipeg today telling us your life journey.
1: Thank you so much, Stuart. I would just like to say that I am so proud of my husband. I know he dedicated his life to seeing a new South Africa where everybody lived in freedom and black and white could walk hand in hand together. And I know it was a very difficult sacrifice for the family, but we are not just one. I'm just not the only one. There is a bigger picture here. And the fact that there is a monument with his name on I'm just so proud, you know, I'm just so, I wish he was here, but things worked the way they did, but my children and the generations to come will always have an opportunity to go to Mozambique and see what their father, grandfather, great-grandfather did for the country.
0: That's a great way to sum this conversation up. Thank you for that, Lindy, and thank you for spending some time with me today. And I hope that once COVID is all said and done, I would love to continue our conversation uh, over a cup of coffee, because I, I just find you incredibly fascinating, and I thank you for sharing this time with us. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to share, not for kitty, but just to make people aware that we are all one. We are all together in this.
0: Okay, Lindy, on that note, I'm going to thank you very much for your time and and spending it with me today. Have a wonderful rest of the day. And and again, thank you so very, very much.
1: Yes, and have a great summer too. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, bye-bye.
1: Bye.
0: Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie May Bituin. Music by Doug Edmund. For
1: more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Andrea Askowitz, and I'm Allison Langer.